Hey guys, this is your host Tim Powell from the Minerals and Royalties Council. On October 13th, Nick Varrell, President and CEO of Wing Resources, Thomas Ayton, General Manager of Grand Valley Minerals, Wade Cole, CEO of Allegiant Stall and Gas, and Casey Stallings, President of Desert Royalty Company, came together to discuss how their teams have managed to execute successful exits across their portfolios over the last few years. Let's jump into the episode and hear more of what everyone had to say. Good morning, everyone. My name is Tim Powell from the Oil and Gas Council. I appreciate you joining us this morning for another edition of our Minerals and Royalties webinar series. A really exciting topic today, I think. If you've been in the mineral space the last five years, at some point over a beer somewhere, there's been a debate about can you exit successfully in the minerals and royalty space? So that's exactly what we're going to address here today. And it's a small group of executives who can successfully say they've done it and not talk in theory. And uh, those are the speakers we have assembled today. And so we'll start with the introductions here and then we'll get going. For those who don't know the Oil and Gas Council and myself, just a brief background. We're an executive level networking platform within the minerals and royalty space. We've been very, very focused. We have a minerals and royalties podcast. We're doing these webinars. We've partnered with Provis Energy Services on their pulse reports. And really at the end of the day, what we're looking to do is help connect like-minded executives and investors to facilitate deal flow, place capital and help them further their business development needs. So if we haven't had the chance to talk directly, I would love to set up a call after this with you, explore your strategy, the structure of your portfolio, and how we might help you plug into deal flow and connect with your peers. So now let's, without further ado, let's jump in. Going around the horn, I'd like to start with Wade Cole, the CEO of Anthem Royalty. And you know, none of these speakers need an introduction. I think this is more of a high-level background on the transactions they've been involved in, and then I'll let them give a little more color on themselves personally. So back in 2017, uh, Anthem had two separate exits, totaling about 216 million. One exit was in Midland Basin, the other was in the Delaware. Both were to Franco, Nevada. Casey Stallings, president of Desert Royalty Company, privately funded minerals and royalties company out of Midland. And they announced a strategic combination with Kimridge Minerals last July to form Desert Peak Minerals, a pure play focused Delaware Basin minerals and royalties company, which currently has about 80,000 NRAs in the portfolio. Thomas Hayden, General Manager of Grand Valley Minerals, the mineral subsidiary of Carousel and Gas, which is a privately funded EMP company with over half a million net acres in the Piance and Ointa Basins, successfully exited a PDP minerals package earlier this year in the Piance to an institutionally backed end buyer. And last but not least, Nick Barrow, President and CEO of Wing Resources, an NGP-backed minerals and royalties company focused on the Permian exited Wing Resources 1 and 2 in the Permian Basin last year to Alliance Resources, which is a diversified holding company with interest and income from coal and mills and royalties. So that's a little background to give everyone context. Now I'd like to hand it over to our speakers. So that was the high-level overview of their deals. I'd like them to introduce themselves and then give a little bit more color, and then we'll jump into some discussion points around the transactional space and exiting at large. So, Nick, why don't you start us out? Okay, great. Hey, uh, Nick Farrell, Wing Resources. We are 
currently a portfolio company of NGP. We have an existing commitment, we existing two commitments. So we've just launched a uh, new one that is a long life fund. So we're currently buying and out there uh, acquiring in the Permian Basin. But back to our divestiture that we went through in 2018, we decided to sell wing one and wing two. Uh, it's about 9,000 royalty acres in the Midland Basin and about another 2,700 acres in the Delaware Basin. And uh, we decided to go in the fourth quarter, 18, the oil market was down. Uh, we thought that that would be, you know, a good time to go because everybody else would still be on their back foot if the market were to recover uh, first quarter. So the market recovered first quarter. We were ready to go. Our total asset was 11,700 acres. We had 700 PDP wells, 400 duck, and 247 permits on the total asset. And at any given day, we were running about 30 rigs. This was at the height of rig count around that time, bumping around. And so we sold the Midland asset for $145 million to Alliance Resources. And then we sold the Delaware asset to a private buyer for $75 million for a total of $220 exit. I thought the space was, it was robust at the time. We had a lot of willing parties and a lot of willing buyers at the end of the day that we had to weed through. I just don't think that there's anything like this asset class out here in the market, you know, zero liability, present value increases month over month with no additional capex. And I feel firm that in the future, there will be an exit market for other people's assets as well. And we'll get more into that as, as we go into the discussion. But that's pretty much the high level of, of what we did last year. And I'll kick it over to back to you, Ben. Tom, a little more color on Grand Valley's portfolio and the transaction you guys did earlier this year. Sure. Tim, thanks for putting everything together. Good to be on here. This high level, you know, Karis Oil and Gas is, you know, very large upstream MP company purchased in Canada's Western Slope assets in 2017. That came with about 40,000 net acres of minerals in mostly Garfield County on the Western Slope in Colorado. So had a pretty big position there to start with. As far as the transaction, we kicked that process off in the fourth quarter of 2019 and were able to close in mid-March of 20, but right before everything shut down. That transaction was north of 5,000 net acres, about 2,300 gross wells, and that was really a PDP only transaction for us. So it was putting off about six and a half million, 96% gas, you know, the annualized cash flow about 5.5 million. Um, so, you know, different than I think the transactions that the other guys went through where there was a lot of value on the upside of the asset, you know, we were really looking at just a very PDP heavy transaction, which certainly colored you know, the marketing process and who we focused on and things like that, which I think we'll get into. So high level, that's the deal. And we were very thrilled to get it closed in March when we did. Congrats on closing it in March. I think uh, you're one of the few in the industry across all asset classes. I can say that. So well done. Wait, a little background on deals with Frank and Nevada. Sure. 2017, I guess we closed on a Midland Basin asset and then did a following bolt on for that one. 
and then turned around and privately marketed straight to them for Delaware-based asset. They were a great partner to work with. We enjoyed uh, working with them, hope to again at some point in the future, but I guess you already gave the metrics on it, which is more or less what they reported, probably 7,500 royalty acres in the Midland Basin and maybe another 5,000 or so. In the Delaware, you know, we're different than everybody else here in that we we didn't really build this to sell it, but it, it just so turned out that it was the right time to take a few chips off the table. So Anthem's, I guess, been uh, buying minerals about the same amount of time that uh, KC has, I guess, the last 30 years. Anyway, moving forward, we're going to be running things under Allegiance is, is what we're doing now. And, and before we hand it over to Casey, just a little background for everyone. So a history lesson in minerals, John Morgan, founder of Anthem and Kyle Stallings, Casey's father, were original partners back in the 80s buying minerals. So that's right. Not too many people who can say they've been buying minerals that long. So it's a family reunion in, in many respects here today. Casey, uh, join me on this story. I think you'll appreciate telling it as well. If I'm not mistaken, John got the old uh, green bar actual copies shipped them over to china to have them key punched in after the second key punch they got up to about 99.6 percent accuracy and they were able to on a large scale send out letters to buy minerals so kudos to john morgan for coming up with that buying one of the first apple computers and figuring out that hey here's a brand new business model you know these days it's pretty easy for all of us involved you go buy a cd and you've got the tax roll back then you had to do it the long way so yeah but letters still work sometimes Sometimes, sometimes. <laughs> They'll send them. Yeah. Casey, a little background on the combination with Kimridge and Desert Peak Minerals. Sure. So in the summer of 19, we sold 25% of our Delaware position to Kimridge for cash. And the remaining 75% that we retained, we strategically worked with Kimridge on their asset to combine 80,000 acres as a unit together. And the concept there is we see the overall value being, you know, the old adage one plus one equals something more than two is what we were trying to take advantage of. And having scale and uh, just overlapping assets was something that we wanted to take advantage of. So that was, you know, over a year ago now, and it's been a really great relationship with Kimridge. And we're thankful to have done the 25% sale. And it's been a efficient process having the overlap in our portfolios. And it will be interesting to see what ultimately the maximum value we can get with the full 80,000 acres, which is continuing to grow and, and see where this asset ends up. And uh, for now, we're enjoying the cash flow, letting the market recover and being patient. Fantastic. Well, thanks for the overview on all the transactions, gentlemen. Let's jump into the Q&A. So just kind of a recap. So Anthem sold to a public company, but Franco Nevada is unique in that they're not your Kimball, Blackstone Minerals, Brigham, Viper type public company. They're actually a mining company and a majority of their income is in gold. So there's kind of some overlap with you, Nick, at Wing. You guys sold to Alliance, who is a private coal company. So some unique kind of end buyer behavior there or patterns, if you may. Tom, you guys sold to uh, an insurance-backed buyer, so a private institutional player. And then Casey, you guys really exited to a private equity group with a potential exit to a public market via an IPO versus through a public company directly. So a different look and feel and how you guys exited that. So what I'd like to do to kick it off is how did the sell side process go? So 
what kinds of groups were being engaged and what was the education needed? Was there a lot of surprise groups? Were they mostly US and Canadian type players? Were, have you started to see international? And what I'd like to do is because the progression of time here is Wade's group exited in 2017. Casey and Nick, you guys did your deals in 2019. And Tom, you guys did your deal at the tail of the last year and this year. And so the space has gotten more sophisticated and investors have gotten more educated over time. So I'd like to play that progression out through each of y'all's comments. So we'll start with Wade. When you guys decided to go out to market with the Midland Basin asset, what did it look like? How was the process, the data room, et cetera? Sure. You know, and, and I should have said this earlier, but first off, Tim, I appreciate you having us all today. This is a pretty neat panel that you put together. Everybody sure. here has come about it in a different way, and I think there's going to be a lot of good intel. And really, Tim, I'm most impressed of everybody in this room. I'm most impressed with how you've pivoted your business model in the pandemic. So uh, kudos to you for running forward with stuff like this. So the single best piece of advice I can give anybody listening is to hire a good advisor. You know, you probably got a good shot buying minerals, but you really need to employ somebody whose sole job is marketing assets like this. We ended up using Detring Energy Advisors. We were very pleased with those guys. Another guy you should look at is Rusty with RBC. Highly recommend. Ten Oak is another good name. If I'm not mistaken, Nick, they took care of yours. As far as who showed up in 2017, we had an assortment of the usual players. Obviously, Franco was one of them. There were a few names that we didn't recognize that have since made a few transactions, but we went with a name we knew and we knew could perform. As far as where they were from, we didn't see anything international at the time, but that might have changed in some of the later guys. As far as education, pretty much everybody on the buy side had an advisor as well. And either side of a transaction like this, you need to have an advisor involved. That's really what it boils down to. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Noble Royalties for sponsoring our Minerals and Royalties podcast. As a leader in the minerals and royalties space since 1997, Noble remains committed to creative solutions for others who may be rethinking their risk tolerance. In order to adjust to the current market cycle, Noble thinks it might be time to reset, rethink, and redeploy capital differently. If you're interested in exploring ways to work with Noble, then please give Chase Morris a call at 972-788-5823 or email him at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com. Thanks. Now let's jump back into the episode. Remind me again, what was the undeveloped versus PDP mix of your asset? Because as we go over to Tom, right, the nature of the end buyer is going to change quite a bit. Sure. So high level, were you seeing pensions? Were you seeing public companies? Were you seeing insurance back, just kind of demographic wise, what were the types of folks you saw back in 2017? We did not show any pension or insurance companies. So it was more or less the usual mineral and royalty players, plus a few others. There might've been a family office or two, more or less, it was mostly the publics and then the usual players that you'd expect to see bidding on a mineral and royalties package and Franco Nevada and one or two other that I can't name. Nick, over to you. So fast forward two years, you guys exit a similar size position, similar basin, right? But it's two years forward. So what was that process like in engaging Alliance and who you guys saw and, and all that? Yeah, I think it's, we were kind of uh, saw the culmination of what you had discussed prior, meaning that we had private buyers, public guys, and, you know, some private equity back type groups in there. And you know, it, it was a it was a busy process. I, I think 
one detriment to us was just the market turned on us in the middle of our process. It went down something like 20% oil did. And so, you know, that weeded out a few, but I would say probably had three or four interested parties. And of the three or four, two were public. One was a private combination of LP investors, and the other was a, a standard private equity group, but that with a tad bit of difference to it. And not saying anybody's names, but uh, it, it really did represent every category of potential buyer and was a good process. And that, you know, I, I'm interested to see what can happen in the future, just as, you know, the markets have changed and everything. But I do feel like that these types of buyers, the publics we can get to later, but the other categories, I still feel like they're around and, and they will be relevant. Did you see any international money sniffing around outside of North America? Uh, no, not outside North America. I mean, Canada's international money. So yes, there was definitely Canadian present. Okay, excellent. And Tom, over to you. So the most recent exit, you know, about six months later than Nick, what did you guys see? And you were PDP only. So that opens right. up a whole new universe of buyers that just want yield. Yeah. So, I mean, our focus out of the gate, we certainly talked to, and again, well, first I'll echo Wade and say, important to have a good advisor. We use BMO, Howard and his team. So they were great with the process. I think we touched all the traditional buyers, you know, Canadian yield strategic, the public guys, structured capital, but, you know, we were just based on, you know, the nature of the asset. We were very focused on income investors versus, you know, growth investors, right? So, I mean, it was, we knew we were really going to be looking for somebody with a very low cost of capital that was interested in, you know, very low decline, long life asset that they were just looking for, the yield. So, you know, that pretty quickly eliminated a lot of the PE guys. Uh, the focus was, again, on those institutional investors, family offices, and folks like that. So I think it was a different group of buyers than some other people have seen. You know, the first sale, again, just like the other guys, we didn't see anything outside of the States or Canada. But it was a lot of people in the data room that I, I was not familiar with. Um, yeah, and I guess that's 0 for 3 on the international question, but if we can try to play a, a small part in that, we have a, a global network. Our headquarters are in London. We have offices in Beijing and Singapore and South Africa. And, you know, not that the, our investor base or executive network is focused on minerals because it's a very U.S.-centric business, but we do have the largest oil and gas network globally. And so the reason we're doing webinars like this is to identify investors that are starting to look at this space and try to educate them. And I'm pleased to say I'm starting to have those conversations, family offices, pensions, hedge funds, Australia and Europe is what I've seen the most so far, but uh, stay tuned on that. So hopefully we'll do a 2.0 in a year and everyone will start to see those folks in the data rooms, right? But Casey, yeah. we'll go over to you here to, to kind of wrap up, you know, going around the horn. I think I'll preface my question to you with this. There's been rhetoric on the upstream side, now on the mineral side for the last five years, really saying there has to be consolidation. There has to be consolidation. There has to be consolidation. Very seldom do we see it. And in the mineral space, I think there's challenges in that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And everyone thinks their permits and their ducks are worth more and they have a better understanding of line of sight because there's a lack of control. What I've heard off, off the record is just it's hard to get the same minds at the table to actually do a deal. You actually got one done with Kimridge. So would love a little background on 
the strategic rationale, how are you able to make that marriage work? And then second, I, what I love when we were chatting, you were saying we wanted the benefits of being public without running a public company. So I'll hand it off to you to talk about that process. Yeah, sure. That makes sense. You're right. I mean, you're exactly right, Tim, that everyone talks about we ought to merge. And this happens in the EMP space and it happens in the mineral world that says we ought to combine assets and this will make for a better outcome for everybody. And you don't see it happening very often. I think one of the reasons that we were able to get it done is there's really two things I would contribute or attribute to our success there would be the ability to have two decision makers in the room. We needed someone from Cambridge and we needed someone from Desert. We didn't have to go to a board. We didn't have to go to our investor or a bank. We just did two principals talking directly to each other, which I think made it very efficient and uh, eliminated some noise that I think a lot of the uh, a lot of these other processes where they can get drowned out in that process. And the other reason I think is you just have to be an adult and you have to say, okay, let's actually get a deal done. And you have to think about it, I think, from a much larger long-term process that you're doing, not are you going to get screwed or screw the other person on that day, but more on let's just make this happen and be flexible with the other party. So I think those two things were were critical to get it done. And, you know, I think that at the end of the day, we don't know at that time who got the better deal or not. I think it was a very fair deal. And, you know, it's you just have to, like, consistently towards the end goal of actually merging, I think, and not get hung up on the details. And then as far as access to the public markets, I mean, we think that that's where this asset should receive its highest and, and best value would be in the hands of the public. And the issue with that is we don't want to be a public company. We want to continue to be private, continue to be funded by our individual LPs. And uh, But we like the asset base in the hands of the public, giving liquidity to our investors and giving the highest value. However, we don't necessarily see the value of ongoing acquisitions in the form of a public company. So we thought this was a good combination for Desert. Having a way to the legacy asset will be in the hands of the public, but the ongoing acquisitions will be privately purchased. That's excellent. And it's a good transition. So kind of recapping everything around the horn, right? Anthem is self-funded, largely a buy and hold type strategy. Been at it since the 80s. Casey, your shop is the same. You have high net worth, very patient capital. You've held on to a majority of your stuff over the last 20, 30 years with legacy companies. You guys sold opportunistically looking at the macro environment, right? Saying, hey, we're not a seller, but Shit, it, it makes a lot of sense to sell right now. Let's run a process and see if we can get a better return for our investors. So on that theory, okay, two for two, I would say you can't really build a minerals portfolio from day one with a plan to exit. You have to build a minerals portfolio saying, I'm going to hold this forever and only sell optimistically. I think another example of that is Darren Geiger and Cornerstone. Been at it since early 2004 and they sold in 2014. Largely been a buy and hold strategy otherwise. But Nick, you built your portfolio from day one to sell and you did it successfully. So I'm going to let you defend yourself and kind of tell how, how did Wing do it and what was the recipe for success? I'll let you kick it off. I think it was kind of a unique time and it was a build and sell strategy from day one. We just got into multiple commitments because I started off with a small commitment and I wanted subsequently other small commitments because my big fear was that we would outrun the market's appetite if our asset became too large. And I think that it was just a unique recipe that 
you know, we identified in 2016, there was only 200 rigs running in the Permian Basin. I think it was like 215 at any given time. And then it peaked out at 400 plus. So we were able to ride that wave of just massive wealth creation. So we, a lot of what we bought originally was undeveloped. And by the time, I think the time zero was around 300 wells. If we were to just say, hey, everything we own on this day, uh, January 1st, 2016, there's 300 horizontal wells on our property, all res cats, either permanent ducts or PDP. By the time we sold, there were about over 1,200 horizontal in those res cats over the next three years. So we were able to ride that wave. And I think you can buy and sell royalties all day. I think what you have to do though, is you have to have a mindset for everything you're buying. What is it going to look like two years down the road? Because you're not going to buy something and sell it six months later. Yeah, you can do pro deals here and there, and that's fine. And that's a great way to make a living. And we have from guys who do all the time, not knocking it, but I'm just speaking as to portfolio creation, aggregation, you have got to be prepared to hold on to it for at least 36 months. And you really have to have an eye as to why is this track going to get developed over all these other tracks that they have? What is going to be the larger story 24 months or 36 months from now? And more importantly, what is the predictive yield that I think that I will be at that point too and how much remaining upside am I going but, you know I think you can do it I think you need to be careful with total size though I don't think there's a lot of people out there buying billion dollar deals or three quarter of a billion dollar deals or half a billion dollar deals in the mineral space what's a threshold that's too big to where you think you're bought, you're putting yourself in a corner and is that a moving target is it going down or is it going up because of the environment we're in so again, Wade, a roughly 200 million, Nick, roughly 200 million. You know, I know Casey and Tom, you guys can't disclose, but do you think that's kind of the sweet spot for these large buyers? Or do you think that'll creep up over time or do you think it's going to contract? Anyone want to jump in? I can speak to that. I think we're the outlier because of the nature of the asset. You know, we were considerably smaller than where these other guys were. And that was by design. You know, as I mentioned before, the base mineral asset over here is, is huge. So when we went into the process, a lot of the discussion was about sort of what is that sweet spot that we can, from a size standpoint, that we wanted to get to in order to be able to target, you know, these income investors and family offices. So, you know, that for us, at least round one was quite a bit smaller. I mean, we were picking assets specifically because they were, you know, more legacy wells that were the lowest decline profiles. And, you know, the size of the package that we marketed was, you know, considerably smaller just because we thought that would give us a little bit broader reach, you know, to some smaller shops and, you know, more direct to LPs. I think for us, you probably need to be really big or sort of in the mid range when you're just focused on, you know, yield guys. I think honestly, you know, I went through that whole thing about you don't want to be too big, but I do, there's a part of me that does think that in the future, the bigger deals will get done. I think if you look at just the macro environment globally with interest rates so low. And I think that there's going to be, you know, volatility 
And again, this is an asset class that is totally unique. You basically have no liability exposure and you have clear pathway to yield. And I don't see any type of asset class like this out there where you can have real ownership of the property at the same time. There's all sorts of firms, there's all sorts of funds, and they have a lot of money. And I think if you have sophisticated management, sophisticated backers, you can ferret out those types of people who would be interested in that type of acquisition. So I wouldn't be surprised in the next, call it 24 months, if some of our bigger counterparts who have aggregated large positions are able to sell for a surprising number. Just because, I mean, there's a lot of smart guys in this industry, and there's a lot of sophisticated management teams. And if they want to figure it out, I think they will figure it out. Well, I think an interesting thing from a trend perspective is that when you talk about scale, and this is just what we've seen this year, you have Sixth Street and the entire override deal. Kimmer just did an override deal, part of a larger financing structure with Callan, and then Pegasus bought $100 million plus deal with Blackstone. That's all private equity. So does private equity work going forward in with scalable assets is that a competitive unique to make the private equity formula work i don't know just a rhetorical question but one other thing i, I kind of want to throw out there casey this kind of brings you into the mix so you guys sold you contributed a portion of your delaware basin fund you have six funds if i'm not mistaken and nick you just with ngp royalty partners have different buckets now you have more of that pdp heavy bucket and then more of an undeveloped bucket like you were doing before and tom was talking about how they carved out pdp minerals on purpose do you think it makes more sense to have those types of risk buckets and then you exit them as the market calls for it and as the asset matures and then you continue buying the undeveloped intelligently without y'all's respective secret sauces any thoughts there i mean i think the more specific you can get tailor a unique package to a specific end user i think the more value you're going to receive so i think you know yes we have six different funds but what we did is we carved out delaware out of three of the six funds to create a delaware focused company and uh, that was the thought process there was we would get more value for the Delaware minerals than just selling the entire fund. And you had to own in 14 different states and 75 different counties. And I think the value really gets diluted there. Wait, what about you guys? If you can just kind of walk through, I mean, again, I think you're a bit unique in how, I mean, you, you really exited everything, right? Whereas Casey exited a portion of what they've like. No, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that we exited everything. You know, realistically, this is probably, we've probably had a half dozen exits of significance to us in the last 10 years and probably a couple dozen over the last 20. So we're probably built a little different than everybody else here in that we're a mineral company. So we're not just an aggregator and we're not just a flipper. We manage our minerals. And so that's probably going to be the difference between us. You know, Casey does a really good job of buying everything, holding it, waiting until the exact right time. We're not that guy. We buy stuff. We like to manage what we own. At times it makes sense to sell it. At times it makes sense to hold it. At times we sell it for the wrong price. At times we sell it for the right price. And the same goes for buying, but we're just active mineral buyers that like what we own, but don't get married to it just the same. We're not investors, we're businessmen. And so that's probably how I'd like to describe us. So yes, we ended up selling a lot of the legacy assets that had just been sitting, but I don't feel like this was out of the ordinary for us to roll everything up and flip it out the door. So, and I say everything, everything's not the term for, we still have quite a bit of holdings, just not very much left in the core Midland.
Court, Delaware. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Noble Royalties for sponsoring our Minerals and Royalties podcast. As a leader in the minerals and royalty space since 1997, Noble remains committed to creative solutions for others who may be rethinking their risk tolerance. In order to adjust to the current market cycle, Noble thinks it might be time to reset, rethink, and redeploy capital differently. If you're interested in exploring ways to work with Noble, then please give Chase Morris a call at 972-788-5823 or email him at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com. Thanks. Now let's jump back into the episode. So going off of uh, kind of a follow-up question on can you build it from day one? You know, Nick and Casey, you both kind of talked about this. You said keep your buyer in mind. I mean, 30, you mentioned 36 months ahead, but, you know, try to think what the asset's going to look like. If this year's taught us anything, it's that we have no freaking idea how the world could be. And the COVID has affected the global financial markets and demand growth and all sorts of macro factors. Is it, I mean, let's just say if it's 36 months, if it's five years, if it's 10 years, can we really know what your end buyer is in that time frame? And so as I know it's probably you peel away the onion and no, you know, build it for your empire for the market is the more, there's a more sophisticated answer to that. And that's kind of a catch-all, but any comments on that and trying to be dynamic and pivot example, you all have been building portfolios 2019 into this year. So kind of comments on that and how to react to the market or do you stay the course? I think you can, I, you know, it's all about staying in the court. And if you look at, the Permian Basin, for example, there was 75% rig loss across the basin. But if you look into the core of the basin, there, if the rig loss was about 30%. And so basically when everything went down, everybody just came in to the best economics. And I think if you stay disciplined, you can weather the market cycles. You know, I get worried about, you know, when I see people buying on the fringes, although you have great deals out there, you can buy way less than you can, you know, 20 or 30 miles the other direction. But when the market downturn comes, you're going to have to ride out the storm, which is fine, though. I mean, if you have the right source of capital, you can do that. There's no clock on this asset. So really, you know, for every answer that I give you or question, I mean, there is no wrong answer. If you have good rocks and good, good fundamental, it will come to you. And if you have the time, it's a good place to be. For me, I don't necessarily have the time in our other traditional vehicles. And so, you know, the discipline factor has to go way up as a result. Anyone else want to jump in? I mean, we focused on, you know, PDP heavy acquisitions in the in the down cycle for sure. I mean, we, you know, I think there's always an advantage to buy low is a good place to be. So it and these, you know, heavily developed fields that we have a lot of information about through the EP company, that's a safe place for us to be, you know, just buying off of present, uh, you know, certain a target present value on the PDP, you know, people's checks start going down. And a lot of times there are good deals to be had there that are, that are very safe. So, you know, through the down cycle, we've definitely focused more on just buying off of PDP and getting those PDP heavy assets in the door. 
You know, one thing, and I'd like to say, just this is my personal opinion, that there's a bit of rhetoric out there. Everyone's shifting to become a PDP bar, but to become a PDP bar at large, it's hard to get scale. You have to become more diversified. It's a lot of singles and bunts, to use a baseball analogy. And, you know, I think it's been difficult, especially if you have more of an oil-weighted focus to transact since March because of the bid ask spread. Where I've seen PDP deals get done are in gasier basins. And so your asset was what, 99% you said gas, Tom? Yeah, 96% gas. Yeah. So, you know, I think there was a shift in the market. Everyone said, oh, I'm going to get some more PDP in my portfolio. Kind of going back to the comment on we're going to pivot a little bit. We're going to get a little bit more PDP in our portfolio because some of the development timing slowed up and then guys weren't able to do that to whom they thought they would were going to. So or I guess we'll kind of turn the page here and start talking about future exits and going forward. You know, do you think more of a PDP strategy makes sense or do you think it's a great time to try to buy undervalued, undeveloped stuff, gas versus oil? And I guess I'll do a catch-all question here. You guys have all had successful exits. Do you plan on trying to build something to sell it in the next 36 months to use a time frame that Nick threw out there? And whoever wants to jump in first. Go ahead, Tom. Right now of a, of a follow-on transaction. You know, when the bottom fell out for oil, it seemed like there was a lot more interest in gas. And we thought that was a good time to actually follow up the first deal with another smaller transaction that we're working on now. So, I mean, we're very committed to gas. From Desert's perspective, you know, we're raising our seventh fund right now. It will kick off this fourth, the fourth quarter of this year. And we don't have any strategy around exiting in, within three years. What we're looking at is we're buying things that we want to own forever. And, and if something comes along that's better than that alternative, then that's what we'll do. But we won't have to build a strategy around we need to get out of this in, you know, three to five years. We're looking to make good long-term investments. And if something changes along the way, like when the Delaware got super hot, we'll look at that and see if there's something to do. But it won't be part of the initial buying strategy. What I would say is when it comes to exiting, one of the key parts of it is how you're funded because the timing is so critical on to when you're thinking about IRRs and you're thinking about the market. And I think that if the market dictates when you sell, you're in a huge advantage versus if your financial structure dictates when you sell. And, uh, and so I think when it comes to exiting, how you're financed and how you got those dollars, give you the most options. Where do you want to jump in or Nick on that? I'll jump in real quick. Uh, we're looking to redeploy capital in our new fund under Allegiance. You know, not only try to redeploy as much as we can of, of what we sold out, but also try to generate a few new relationships with institutional investors. You know, going back to what KC said, we're fairly agnostic on what it is we're buying. It's just, can it make us money? We just need to be within this space and figuring out how it makes sense for us. You know, when you're buying with your own pocketbook, it's a little easier. No one's telling you what you have to buy or not buy but you need to make sure it makes sense. So that's what we're doing. So for us, it's, you know, we're on fifth commitment. We sold uh, wing one, wing two last year, and uh, we, we had another commitment for wing three. We placed that, and then we're currently uh, spending out of wing four, which is a, a traditional structure, and then wing five, which is MGP World Partners. So we do have quite a bit of assets on the shelf right now and it's oily and it's in a great part of the Delaware and I would look to divest somewhere in the future. I don't wouldn't do it now and the money has recently been spent so I'm not really under you know I say recent last 14 15 months so I'm not really in under the gun as far as 
that is concerned. So I feel like we're in a good position. I clarity on what's going to happen over the next 12 months in the markets. To Casey's point, you want to time the market right and not have to worry about your money. And I feel like we're in that position right now. I think things are going to get a lot better next year. So we'll see what happens. I don't know what we're going to do or when we're going to do it, but. Do y'all see, and this is my personal opinion, I think that corporate to corporate opportunities will become, there'll be a secondary market there of scale. I think that there are going to be some winners and losers. Everyone says that minerals don't have a shot clock, but there is, you know, going on Wade's comment, we're businessmen, we want to make money. There's a time value money argument. So there's a number of different things that I see. The trend I've seen is that people want to get chips off the table. They're starting to let smaller stuff go. So they're not ready to sell the whole portfolio. They don't need to nor want to because the discount would be too heavy, but they do have to start let tinier bits and pieces go. It could be selling down concentrations in a unit. They could be in between funds and they need capital to redeploy, or it could just be pressure from their investors. Everyone's in a different boat, but there is definitely widespread market sentiment to do that. I can tell you because I speak with everybody. Going forward, more, you know, just time will create more pain or a better opportunity to sell, right? As assets mature. Do you think as the ground game continues to churn forward and minerals become institutionally held that now it becomes a very viable option to kind of, we've seen some PE to PE, public to PE, right? Pegasus, Blackstone type transactions. Any thoughts there on kind of looking into the crystal ball? I think it's going to be really messy. I think you're going to see guys that you would not see in a typical market take out other guys that you probably wouldn't expect to happen. My grandfather was in this business and my dad was in this business. And the one thing that they told me constantly is it's a cash business, not an asset business. And, you know, other people have very varying ways of looking at it and they have different financial realities where they can own the assets and they don't need the cash. But for us, we look at it as a cash business. And when there's an opportunity to harvest the cash, we will do it. And it it just comes down to timing. Well, listen, everyone, this has been a lot of fun. I think it's a great topic. I appreciate everyone participating. We'll go around the horn with closing comments. Wade, we'll start with you. It could be a public service announcement, just what you want people to think about with Allegiance and Anthem going forward and how they can work with you and what you guys are looking for. Yeah, sure. In anything that makes sense, we'd love to look at it. We'd love to end up with a good pretty you know, a PDP component on a go forward basis. If you've got a PDP asset, please do reach out. As far as some closing comments on those who are trying to figure out if and when they're gonna be able to exit. I do need to make sure that everyone's aware when it comes time to exit, you've got to make sure that you're in pay on the properties and you've got a really good property management system in place. You will not have a successful closing if you don't have those two things in place. You might have a successful process from the front end, but PSA signing forward, things could go really sideways if all your T's aren't crossed and your I's dotted. Yeah, it's a great point. You know, speaking to those who have successfully done it right, I think there is some sort of constructive feedback to you want someone to be your end buyer if you're a smaller guy get your shit together and clean it up so that the deal flow can continue to churn, right? Well, well, and a follow-up on that is whoever you end up selling to, make sure you treat them like a partner. Something John Norwood has said over and over is the party you're selling to, hey, if it doesn't work for our partner, it shouldn't work for us. So keep that in mind when it comes time to sell. You know, I think everybody here who's on this panel is here for the long haul. 
and this business is small. Make sure that you're treating the guys you're doing business with in an honorable manner. Tom, and I know you guys are, have more assets, right? Potentially in Sicily. So your takeaway comments? Yeah, I think, you know, in terms of acquisitions, we're very, you know, active internally on, you know, in and around the Keras footprint, which as you mentioned, is quite large. You know, we're in over in the Uinta now with, a, you know, we recently purchased a large operated asset over there. So, you know, most of our buying is focused, you know, in the Keras operated areas. You know, that said, I think we're very much interested in looking at anything, you know, in the Rockies. Rockies gas is our specialty. And, you know, if it's out there, we'd like to see it. You know, we've got a great legacy asset. And, you know, we also realize there are a lot of guys out there who are looking for PDP heavy deal to sort of increase the baseline cash flow in their portfolio. So, you know, we'd love to hear from people who are, you know, interested in, um, you know, looking at PDP assets, given the nature of you know, our base here, we can do a pretty good job of tailoring things in terms of size to, you know, interested parties. So that's where we are. Nick? Yeah. I mean, just we're here, we're still active and um, we're open for business. AC? Well, thanks, Tim, for putting this together. It has been a lot of fun. And uh, Wade, I echo your comment on being in pay and knowing your title. And uh, I'm hoping that uh, anyone that we buy in the future heard Wade's comments, because a lot of them haven't acted that way that we bought. <laughs> and it's normally the small guy that says the title is as clean as a hound's tooth. Normally means there's lanes and lawsuits and problems, which means less value. But as far as desert goes, like I said, we're raising our seventh fund right now. It will be similar in nature. And uh, we still have capital to deploy internally. Uh, so there won't be any break in the action. So uh, we'd love to look at doing any deals with anybody that uh, has a creative idea or wants to sell it for really cheap. Fantastic. Well, that wraps things up. Thank you again, gentlemen. It was, it was a great discussion. And in closing, just if I haven't had a chance to talk to you and you're listening today, I'd, I'd love to jump on that call. I want to help anyone I can in the mineral space. We've had a lot of fun doing it. And, you know, one thing, as I said, we're seeing a lot of people need to get chips off the table. So if you have tiny assets that are non-core to your strategy or your portfolio, we can probably help you out with plugging in with the right buyers. So we'd love to have a conversation around that as well. So thanks again, everyone. Have a fantastic rest of your day and we'll be in touch. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Tim. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, guys. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed. The Minerals and Royalties Council represents the largest network of senior minerals and royalties-focused executives and investors in the world. Throughout the year, we leverage our relationships and industry knowledge to facilitate introductions on behalf of our royalties clients to help them place capital, buy and sell deals, and form new partnerships. If you're interested in learning more about how we can help your team, then please email me at tim.powell at energycouncil.com or visit our website at www.energycouncil.com forward slash minerals dash royalties dash council forward slash. Also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and be sure to share these episodes with anyone in your network that you think would enjoy. Thanks and see you next time.